Headley Devil. Grab your Good morning, good morning. You're listening to Wednesday Breakfast, uh, 6th of September. Uh, fine morning with Paddy, Judith and Kate here. <laughs> Actually, I say fine morning, but it's not really, is it? Let's it's be not, honest. It's clear it enough. It's yeah. clear enough. It's clear. Is it? Yeah, yeah. the moon's still out. <laughs> still out an hour ago. <laughs> Welcome back, Judith. It's so good to see you back in here. Yeah, it's great to be back. Wonderful. Yeah, loving Melbourne. I know it's cold, but uh, the air is fresh and um, really the birds are great and it feels wonderful. Can you share where have you, have you been in warmer pastures? I, I have, actually. <laughs> I'm parasite to tell anyone, but uh, I've been in, um, in Malaysia, nice. in Penang, and uh, also in um, KL. Yeah. And before that, Singapore is a long trip, and then China and Yunnan. So very privileged to be in those amazing places. Was some of it, some of it, holiday or work. Yeah, a, a bit of a mixture. Bit of a mix. Yeah, nice. working on a project. So I did some interviews in Singapore, and uh, then editing in in um, Malaysia. And yeah, yeah, nice, so, yeah. lovely. Jealous, well, you look very healthy. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> probably a little She's bit. She's rejuvenated, tan. unlike Patty and I. <laughs> Still, we're slowly shaking off winter here. Well, spring I, is here. September is with us, as we said, the 6th. Yes, um, and actually it's a bit drizzly and it's a bit drizzly all week, which I'm disappointed about. But then on the news yesterday, I heard the firefighters were doing the warnings about summer this year oh. because it's been such a dry winter that we're probably going to expect, um, a, you know, a dangerous fire season. Um, so we should welcome now all the last bits of... Um, you know, rain and drizzle because yes. we kind of need it. That yeah. moisture, we kind of need it. We need it to soak into our soil. Um, but it's kind of September. It's famous for, isn't it? It's like September showers. I hope make that so. Up. I hope so. Yeah, and all the snowgoers. But we have to say yeah. thank you to Earth Matters who was just playing before. Yes. Bringing in the morning. Um, and we've got a lovely show lined up for all the listeners out there. This morning we do. I have um, I have two guests um, talking about two separate events. First, um, Rhonda Held will be chatting to me at seven fifty. Um, she's from the Council of Aging, and she's going to talk about an event, the Heart of Aging, which has got an amazing um, amazing panel, and you'll hear about that later. Um, and then Mel Turner, we tried to get her last week, but that didn't co- go through. And she's sharing um, Wild by Nature Village Camp. It's for um, kids and adults, yeah, connecting people back with nature. Um, and then later I'll be chatting with Ella Stewart-Peters, who's academic and historian, about quite a quite a topic, um, <laughs> discussing the history of anti-vaccination campaigns um, and conspiracies. So, you know, it's a yeah, big topic. fascinating. It's, yeah, but it's great to get a, a historian's point of view and how that's changed over time. Big yes. Time. Yeah. It will be. And... In the middle there somewhere, we'll have Hannah Dolan um, talking about changes that could happen to the insurance that covers midwives, um, private practicing midwives. So she's well qualified to speak on the matter. So it'll be really good to hear an update on the plight. Such another big topic, that one. Isn't it? It's just so sad. Like, Mm. I can't wait to talk to her. I just think it's disgusting that insurance is being taken away from mid. I mean, like, just no, don't get it. Yeah, it'll be good to get (laughs) it. Yeah, we'll we'll hear more. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so please stay tuned. And then we've also got lots of community announcements and we've got Play On coming in. 
Um, wow. And we've got a musician coming in from there, from their collective, which is new it's to the terrific. scene. 3CR Breakfast would like to say thanks to program sponsor, the New International Bookshop, for the financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall at 54 Victoria Street, Carlton. Welcome back to 3CR Community Radio on a Wednesday breakfast. A few things up next, but I just wanted to share, um, I guess not trying to jump in with some alternative news, but I was just watching it last night, Monday and Tuesday night, um, Monday night on Four Corners and last night on The Project, about this polyethylene external cladding. Have we? Yes, like, I've been reading about that WTF, too. WTF, are you, are you kidding me? This like Australian crisis, Patty, you look confused. Have I'm you not? confused, please <laughs> fill me in. Great, I'm so glad you don't know about it. Um, <laughs> so pretty much this import for external cladding on buildings um, has been used across Australia for I'm not quite sure how long, but what it is is aluminium and then basically just highly flammable plastic and then aluminium encased on that. So that forms the outside part of so many buildings, high rises, um, in Australia, yeah. do you remember which the big is fire? the Grenfell, which is why the Grenfell Towers mm. blew up. Really, like, same material. The same material. So polyethylene, which is just plastic, um, highly flammable. And so now Australia has a kind of, you know, uh, national um, investigation as to ha- like a bit of a triage, how many buildings have it and what's their major risk. Um, the ones that have the higher risk, obviously the high-rise ones um, with lots of it, well, they'll need to take it down. Um, and because it's cheaper cladding yeah. and there's better cladding that is more fire resistant. And I think, excuse me, you have to correct me maybe, Kate, but was it as many as 2,000 buildings or something like that they were yeah, talking about? Yeah, don't know numbers, but like for sure. Like it, it I, was would, a lo- I would it was just say absurd. yes, plus. <laughs> and it's <laughs> like, been used up until today and still used? Or I'd, is say it's still being, yeah. I'd say it's still being used, but it's probably about to be pulled back. And like no one knows who to blame because there's just a long, you know, it just goes back so far. Like the, the, the funny thing about it is the building codes – um, don't no material that comes in can comply with the building codes. So what's happened is people have gotten really lax about how maybe how flammable or how combustible it is. So you know, um, cladding with ten percent polyethylene is still combustible. Cladding with 50-60% polyethylene is more combustible. So CSRI did this test, but the thing is, nothing complies with the building codes. So people are just bringing stuff in. The cheapest it's, stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it makes me that that was such oh. an awful, awful thing that happened in England with that building, and you just don't want to see it happen in we the street anywhere, don't want to see anywhere. It happening. Yeah, and, yeah. and Docklands as well had the I had the fire as well um, in twenty fourteen, mm. which saw. Yeah, their building kind of go up quite quickly, but no one was injured, thankfully. Um, but yeah, coming up next on, on the show, we're going to hear from, um, it's a, a pre-record, um, Herlambang Wiratraman, excuse me, is the director at Centre of Human Rights Law Studies, Erlanga University. Um, and he spoke with Asia Pacific Currents Pierre Mora on the state of human rights in Indonesia and the structural impediments for justice for working people. So we'll hear from that interview now. Indonesia is seen as a country that's got elections and democracy. But in reality, what is the state of human rights for working class communities in Indonesia at the moment? Talking about the human rights situation in Indonesia, 
will be important to see the role of the state in uh, responding human rights uh, itself, especially in resolving cases. First is about past human rights abuses, to what extent the state responds to that uh, issue. And secondly, how the state's response in responding, especially uh, look at the issue of freedom and also how to fulfill and protect human rights for uh, marginalized people like small farmers, labor, fisher folks uh, in the country. So for the first one, I think so far I've seen that uh, the government took a position to not uh, resolve a uh, problem, especially dealing with uh, human rights, uh, past human rights abuses by making like uh, impunity circuit and would make a detrimental situation for the victim and uh, victims of family and it will be uh, going too far from, from the justice. And secondly, in relation to how the state's uh, response to the uh, marginalized people, for instance, like to labor and small farmers, we could see that actually the government start uh, with a good things, for instance, like a basic curing. Uh, social security in the sector of health and also for labor. But uh, the fact in practical situation, the labor should organize themselves in order to achieve their aim or their, 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 the, the government service in order to get access for that. And for small farmers, I think although the government decided to have a program agrarian reform in the context of uh, Jokowi's presidency, but then still, in reality, it seems like providing access for people to have land. But on the other hand, while the capital owner also are facilitated by the government and also dispossess uh, the, the people at the ground. So that seems to me that the policy seems contradictory to one to another. We'll get to the issue of the small farmers and some of the labour issues and the human rights in practice in a second. But I just want to go back to a comment that you made at the start about resolving or even addressing human rights abuses in the past in Indonesia. Why do you think there is such a reticence from the government in Indonesia to address some of the human rights abuses in the last 10, 30, 40 years in Indonesia? The first reason, the government has no strategic concept in dealing with how to end the impunity. Secondly, it is uneasy for the current president since uh, he is uh, surrounded by those who are considered as uh, human rights violators. So who come, we can rely the problem to be solved by those who really related to uh, human rights violation. And the third one, the legal system, I mean judicial system itself, did not provide uh, access for the uh, victim to get access to, for instance, like uh, compensation and so on, because of the process itself, it seems like uh, making uh, impunity. For instance, like after the National Human Rights Commission sent the investigation process, initial pro-justitia process, and sent 
send the document to the attorney general but then attorney general returned the document to national human rights commission for many times without considering the victims of violence who are really becoming a victim for multi multiplying violation because of uh, waiting the process in uncertain situations so are you saying that the judicial and the structural systems of government are very much uh, in favor of the ones who have abused human rights yes precisely correct because the establishment for instance like national harmony council that dewan kerukunan nasional in order to solve or to or to seek the way to resolve the problem of past human rights abuses actually the way to silence uh, the victim the way to do not un- unravel those who are actually responsible for violation in the past from what you have just said for the marginalized communities in Indonesia and you know the ones that you've had dealings with whether they're in the urban or in the rural areas what is the access to justice that they have do they even believe they can have access to justice they use their power themselves in order to get access for labor for instance they establish a sort of like union or association uh, specifically in order to to monitor the access for uh, security social security for instance that uh, government provided but uh, then it takes process in order to get access by uh, looking at the actual situation for instance like uh, negotiating with the hospital management negotiating with the government or asking media to report a particular case and so on so it takes a lot of effort and energy in order to get access although it is possible but it's long road to access of justice this is also happen for the small farmers when uh, in the past especially during authoritarian regime of suharto their land were removed uh, or uh, expropriated by the regime uh, and then the regime gave to the state owned corporation or private uh, corporation and then what happened after suarto uh, stepped down they reclaimed the land but those who i mean the the small farmers after reclaiming the land the government did not recognize that till present so it means that almost tw- uh, 20 years the land dispute in indonesia had been disregarded as a process of uh, justice to get uh, access to land so that's really amazing for me because considering the government has a specific pro- program on agrarian reform but on the other hand it seemed to me that the government do not want to recognize those disputed land from what you say there are obviously very powerful interests within the government institutions that do not want to redress past abuses past injustices regardless of what the law says now that's right that's right it it's quite complicated since uh, jokowi perhaps has a, 
a position to solve the human rights uh, problem but then it will be uneasy for him to solve by himself since uh, as i said that he he is uh, surrounded by those who are really uh, closely related to violent actor secondly after the demise of suarto in 1998 it was uh, the change of governance systems from centralized to decentralized and it mean not uh, the transferring of uh, or shifting of authority but also shifting of power from central from jakarta to local and it mean also the transfer of capital which are really influencing to the context of local elites which they had vested interest in order to maintain uh, status quo at the local context so it means that for the people it is uneasy to seek justice either at local or at national level because they they would face multiple levels and also barriers in order to get uh, justice or to get human rights protection from uh, various actors in the government so that will be serious barriers for them so where do you see the human right movement in indonesia going in the next few years if there are such barriers in front of uh, implementing even some of the laws that are already there we've seen that initiatives from the people in connection to other civil society and also the group of people at uh, academia we have uh, a numerous research center and also uh, non-governmental organizations and also uh, labor movement labor union who can hand in hand uh, together to build uh, the power uh, in order to push a policy which respect to the people and also i could say that although the small farmers has have uh, also strong uh, movement but still need to be improved in order to make a stronger position especially aware with the class movement that they could not struggle by themselves but also need to collaborate with other actors or uh, aliens which are really at a similar situation as a victim from the structural system which are not in favor for them and here uh, unfortunately after the authoritarian regime fell down we've seen that many human rights actors actually involved within the government but they could not do something more uh, progressively in protecting the people that is really unsurprisingly because the system itself something that detrimental for the people and they could not do something more to step to stop or prevent for instance like a license for exploiting uh, natural resources because it would affect to the people and so on so that's really real situation that we are facing and it is uneasy for the coming year for a building movement Thank you very much, uh, Herr Lambang. That's um, a very good uh, explanation, overview of what's happening in the human rights situation in Indonesia. And we'll certainly keep abreast of what's happening uh, in this very important country. 
and uh, we wish you all the best in your work as a human rights um, activist. Thank you very much, Ashley. You're on 3CR Breakfast. We were just listening to Jalma Wirtralman, um, who's the Director of Human Rights Centre at the Law Studies Aralinga University, who spoke with um, Asia-Pacific Current Affairs, Pierre Morto, on the state of human rights in Indonesia and the structural impediments for justice for working people. And, um, and that's Asia Pacific Currents that can be heard on 3CR on Saturdays at 9am or, um, or just googling 3cr.org.au forward slash Asia Pacific. <laughs> um. Join Ruminations on Thursday, September 14 at 12pm to 1pm as we head down the river to South Bank. this special broadcast will be handing over the mic to people currently experiencing homelessness and staying in crisis accommodation. So tune in on Thursday September 14 between 12 and 1pm as Ruminations goes to Southbank and hear the voices and stories of people currently experiencing homelessness in Melbourne. It's just another great piece of information of how to stay in touch with 3CR and the different shows that this beautiful station houses. Um, we have many other shows that happen here at 3CR and also house many other beautiful people here and do great projects. And one of these, Judith, I was hoping to get a bit of an insight into some of the projects that you were working on. You gave us a little allusion to... Um, the so doing some interviews in Singapore. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a story about a Singapore family, and uh, they're from uh, the Jewish heritage. Their heritage is Jewish, but uh, it's just incredibly complex because the relatives and extended family are from all over. So some are Chinese, uh, some are Muslim some are Christian, and yet they all get together and eat together and work together, and somehow it's, it's just very special. So some of the people I interviewed were in their 90s, in their 80s, and they were sort of going through the history of their lives in Singapore, but also that brought in the history of Singapore as well. So, I mean, it's still, it's at that point where it's all over the place. So I've got all this information, I've got some great stories, and I'm not sure what it's going to look like yet, <laughs> but uh, it was wonderful. It sounds very tasty and it sounds like a great story that's slowly forming up there. Well, and also then being in Malaysia where they were celebrating, um, they had their Independence Day last Thursday, and they were celebrating, you know, the diversity of the community. So there was this huge walk that happened a few days before, and like all the parliamentarians were out, you know, television people were out, like it was a big public walk celebrating diversity and all the different groups that live there. And so I was just trying to imagine you know, our politicians who are in power now getting out for such a march and doing such a thing. And I thought, wouldn't it be fabulous? But it kind of held a mirror up to some of the very monochrome dialogue that's going on around Australia and what it should be. And, you know, we don't want people who are from different countries or another nationality, you know, in Parliament and... Uh, I don't, and, and, and then the whole thing about um, gay marriage and 
Not that that would be uh, a positive, positively received in, in Malaysia, I should say. But, I mean, just the celebration of diversity, it was very vivid. I'm not pretending that everything's perfect there by any means, but it just seemed such a contrast to the kind of stuff that's going on right now. Mm, the public sphere. Yeah. From every corner of the land, womankind arise! Women on the Line, a current affairs program devoted to women's voices, covering a diversity of women's interests and hearing women's perspectives on current affairs. Erosion of human rights leads directly and inevitably to erosion of human security. We do not accept the denial of our rights because the right to have a say over our country is our life. Women on the Line. Tune in on Mondays at 8.30am and Wednesdays at 6am on 3CR Community Radio 855am. And streaming live at 3cr.org.au. Hello, and we're back again. Hello, and we're back again here at 3CR. Judith was just giving us a beautiful spiel on what she's getting up to and what Malaysia was looking like. And we've got a new guest on the line, Hannah Darlin, who is a mother, midwife and professor who is about to speak to us about the insurance policies that are offered to practising midwives or private practising midwives and the renewal that's coming up in 2019. Are you there, Hannah? Thanks for joining us. Hello, Hannah, are you there? And oh, there we go. Thank you. Hi, Good Hannah. morning. Good morning. Thanks for joining us. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's an honour to be speaking with you. I've done a little bit of research into you and it seems like you've been working in the in the field for a long time, starting out in Yemen with your mother. You're a third generation midwife, if I understand correct. I'm a second generation midwife, but uh, I'm very proud of that. Beautiful. Um, sorry, I don't know where I got the third from. Um, <laughs> uh, now, we wanted to chat to you here on our current affairs program about some statistics that have come out and also about leading into the campaign to either renew the in indemnity insurance policy that covers private practicing midwives. But first, wanted to get a sense of the midwife scene that's happening in Australia and how it's placed. What, what are the options and modes of care offered to um, expectant mothers and birthing mothers? Well, in Australia, we have uh, two systems. We have a private and a public system, and around 70% of women access the public system, and, and now under 30% access the private system. And in the public system, women will often have um, care through you know, midwives' clinics or increasingly, because it is so popular and the outcomes are so good, um, we're, we're expanding what we call group practice or continuity of midwifery care, where women can have a, a midwife all through the pregnancy. They're the one who's at the birth, you know, catching their baby, and then they do the postnatal care. So, so that's expanding in Australia as an option. Uh, women can birth uh, in uh, birth centres or at home or in, in hospital. And in the private sector, the, the dominant model at the moment is a private obstetrician who provides care antenatally, and then the midwives in the hospital provide the labour care, and then the doctor comes in, you know, at the last minute to um, to do the, the catching of the baby and then a couple of postnatal visits afterwards. 
But what we now have had since 2010 is an increasingly established private midwife model, which was enabled by midwives gaining access to Medicare, gaining access to insurance, prescribing and ordering rights so that women can have their care with a private midwife in, in the community, either in hospital or in, in uh, or at home birth. And that's the group that are currently uh, potentially going to be affected by the legislation changes or lack of insurance in 2019. Mm. And how is that conversation going Is it in the lead up to it? So it has been, to just get it clear, 10 years since private practising midwives, the concept has been in Australia through Medicare and the rebate scheme? It's been since 2010. And when what happened in 2010 when we got the reforms is that there was also a change to national regulation, which means rather than having registration regulation boards in each state and territory, there was one national health board. And as a requirement for, as part of the new um, setting up of this board, the, there was a requirement that health providers be insured for every part of their practice. Now, Private midwives um, have not been insured since 2002 for home birth since the collapse of HIH. And there were the, we had massive insurance problems back in, in that time and a product was just never found to cover the small number of home birth midwives who practice out there. So when the reforms came in 2010, we were faced with a situation where home birth was potentially going to become illegal and there were mass rallies and mass protests and, and we did an awful lot of lobbying of, of government. And so they brought in what they call an exemption, which means that if you're providing home birth services, as long as you um, you know abide by all of these quality and safety mechanisms, there's an exemption to you requiring home, uh, insurance for the home birth and then that exemption was supposed to last three years. The three years came up, no product was found, so they extended it another three years. That three years came up in about 2016. Again, no product was found. They've now extended it to 2019 and said, that's it, that's the end. If there isn't a product, um, we're not going to extend it again. And our concern is that's two women's pregnancies away. You know, women don't, you know, you can't find a product in October because women are pregnant for nine months. And uh, to date, the Australian College of Midwives put enormous efforts into, you know, producing quality assurance programs of showing evidence that we can do this um, safely uh, for insurance companies. But we've seen absolutely no uh, evidence of any action happening on a major way at state or, or at um, federal government level. Hannah, so to be clear, you're saying in 2019, they're saying that the exemption will expire. So all home births will be um, unin like non-insured. Is that right? Privately practising midwives providing home birth. Now, mm. when we think about public home birth, more than half the home births in Australia are, are attended by privately practising midwives. There are 12 publicly funded home birth models in Australia. Right. Yes. Which is, and you have to live very nearby the hospital. You have to be extremely low risk. Several of them have shut recently. Um, so it's not a sustainable model on its own mm. to provide women with home birth services. Mm. And 2010, you said there were big rallies and people campaigned against this um, or against the reforms. So, I mean, I'm guessing this is going to open up the discussion now. We're going to start to see um, public, um, you know, opposition towards this and, and, and rallies as well. Are we starting to see that now? Well, I think we're going to have to start again if there is no evidence of any action, and we can't leave it 
to one or two months beforehand. We can't do that because women are pregnant. They need to know Absolutely. that the choices they make are supported. So it's sad we have to do this because, you know, home birth is a well-supported, well-established option for women in so many countries around the world where they do it well, they do it safely, and they do it insured. Mm. And I know back onto the listening to a lot of what you've spoken to leading up to this campaign and through your work, um, it seems like that informing women on the choices that they have within the birthing model or within birth and the process of birthing is a key component, but also getting rid of the fear around giving birth and empowering women to trust their bodies is a big component of this because um, some of the statistics that have come out, the majority of women in Australia birthing within the hospital and 98% according to the Australia's Mother and Babies 2014 report published in 2016 by the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare, which for me from the outlook it just sounds a bit disproportionate. Is that a true statistic? Is that a representative statistic? It's a it's a representative statistic of what happens. It's not a representative statistic of when, what choices women would make if given the choice. You know, we've had no expansion in birth centres in this country for over 15 years. In fact, several of them have shut. We have long waiting lists for birth centres. We have so much evidence to support the fact that not only do women like them, but the outcomes are better. Yet there is this real resistance against any model of care that's seen to be either a, a threat or an alternative to the mainstream medical model. And then when you talk about home birth, well, you've got complete head in the sand attitudes. You know, despite the fact 20% of women in the Netherlands give birth at home, and they have one of the lowest cesarean section rates and some of the best outcomes in the world, mm. we just have this attitude that, you know, all birth is is, um, is an emergency or a, or a drama and needs, you know, highly placed medical attention. Well, look, some births do. And we can be very skilled at finding out which which women are more appropriate to birth in, in a hospital. But we know, actually, if you're low risk and you have your baby at home attended by a registered, competent midwife who's well-networked into a responsive system, the outcomes for the baby are no different. The outcomes for the mother are much better. So it does not make sense that we do not support this choice. A lot of your research has been into trauma caused within the birth for the mother um, and a lot of this could you tell us a bit about where you work and what you've been working on with um, trauma in say a birthing mother in the hospital and why some mothers experience a very traumatic birth when there could be alternatives if information was there for these mothers sure look it is a major focus of our work and i have several phd students doing different aspects of understanding what traumatizes women and also why do women make a decision increasingly in our country to free birth and that is to have no attendant at home and to do it themselves and we've done thousands of interviews and we've, we've interviewed you know we've surveyed thousands of people uh, you know the bottom line is that there are several drivers behind women's trauma uh, one of the big drivers is that the intervention they have in childbirth, particularly around cesarean section forced delivery, uh, it is um, a feeling of being violated, of not being listened to, of having your um, informed consent overrided, of you know feeling that 
there, there was no voice in the process. And that is a very, very sad statement when we are the cause of women's trauma. So women's trauma, we know, is, is rising. Some of the studies will say that, you know, up to 40% of women are coming out traumatized from birth and around 1 in 10 are developing post-traumatic stress disorder from birth. Now, you know, we're talking about women having a baby coming out like a Vietnam vet returning from warfare. How is that acceptable? Mm -hmm. And why would we not be desperate to undo the situation? It sounds almost like it's an anti-women policy in a way, and it's about control of women, that they don't have those options. Yeah, you know, recently The Handmaiden's Tale has aired, and you know, I read that book many years ago, and I think when you saw that TV series in... You know, it, it's so real when it's being um, acted in front of you. I, I just, I watched it with a chill, and I see so many similarities to what we do in childbirth, where we have this, this very patriarchal, um, misogynist attitude that women don't know what's best for them, and we need to tell them, and we need to control them, because at the end of the day, I think society still very much sees the baby as the product. And it's their product, and they have an investment, obviously, in making sure this child is well and healthy. But in doing that, they're actually having a, a major influence in, in affecting women's minds. And no woman can mother well if she comes out of, mother, of, of birthing uh, into motherhood devastated. So, just, just going back a bit, you, you mentioned the birth centers, that there haven't been any new ones. So was there a period when we were seeing a lot of birth centers established, like historically? Was there a big movement around this in Australia that's now been pulled back? Yes, that's a really important uh, piece of history. Because in 1989, the Shearman Report came out in uh, New South Wales. And that what they found is when they interviewed lots of women and saw what was going on, increasingly women were choosing home birth in order to avoid the hospital system. And they were saying the hospitals were incredibly mechanised, uh, interventive, cold, surgical-type rooms, and they were wanting home-like environments. And, and, they, and they were getting a hearing for that, like someone was listening to that message. Yeah. Well, uh, Sheeman came out and recommended the expansion of birth centres, and from that, in New South Wales and several other states, we saw the setting up of, of quite a few birth centres. But that happened over a period of about five years and then there was no more. So so why, why the stalemate? Why the sudden ending of that? It's almost, it was a kind of movement for birth centres, wasn't it? I mean, I have some memory of it. Yeah, mm. it was a movement for, for birth centres. And like all movements, you know, we get great energy and then I think there's exhaustion and then there's this slow whittling away. Yeah, scraping back, crawling, yeah. clawing back with the gains that have been made. So we're certainly familiar with that in the women's movement. And, and you know, women are, they're busy. They're, they're, they're raising children. They're caring for elderly people, you know, parents. And the exhaustion that comes from the constant battle. Mm -hmm. You know, that yes. does lead sometimes to gains being, being mm -hmm. lost. So what do you want us to do? I mean, it sounds like there's something. I mean, it sounds like we, A, need to be more aware of what's going on, but what would be useful? Well, I think the women of Australia need to, to rise up and say enough. And they need to say we have a voice and we have a right to determine what happens to our bodies while we give birth. 
and we have a right to determine who's with us and we have a right to be treated humanely and with respect and with kindness. And, um, you know, I, I, I long for the day that we see that kind of rage come back again because it is only then that government does sit up and listen. And I think that rage is once again rising. It was very palpable in 2009 and 10 when, you know, we had several thousand people gather outside of Parliament House and the massive reforms came in. We need it back again. And uh, do you see it? Are you hearing it from people? Well, I, I guess there's, there's two things happening. One, I think, is the, you know, I call it the canary in the coal mine uh, effect, um, which is that many of the women are now just giving up fighting and they're just going out and doing it themselves and having free births mm. and going underground and seeking birth workers. And, and I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm more concerned that that's happening than, than that we have the rage demanding mm. um, access for women. That really hits the point there, Hannah, about how important to have at least the amenity insurance, as bureaucratic and red tape filled as it is to cover private practicing midwives to offer um, women who choose this path. I was hoping to get a little insight from you of what a midwife, how does a midwife promote positive outcomes and experiences for mums and babies within the community, within their health and just within their lives? Yeah, well, I think one of the most effective ways a midwife works is in that primary health care community-focused approach, which sadly was, well, you know, was, was history. That's the old, I mean, midwifery is one of the oldest professions on earth. Midwives were the, in the village. They were the person who caught the baby and they laid the bodies out. They were integral to the community. And I think we've lost that. And I think that's very sad because midwives were great advocates for women. But we're reclaiming that in models of care like continuity of midwifery care where women have their own midwife. Because what happens when you develop a relationship with women and they develop one with a midwife is that trust develops, empowerment comes because women start to realise they can do this and someone's going to be there fighting their corner. And so, you know, I think relationship-based care and a return to it, a return to the community being the basis, not the hospital, is going to be an enormously powerful way to shift the agendas. It's what's worked in cases like the Netherlands. You know, uh, in the Netherlands, everything's in the community. If there's a problem, you go to hospital. In the Netherlands, if you end up having a birth in hospital, women say to each other, oh, what went wrong? In Australia, you have a birth at home, and women say, oh, what's wrong with you? So we've got this inverse mm-hmm. attitude, and we need to reclaim the community. We need to reclaim the primary health care approach to this issue. Just, just related to that, uh, I had my second child with a midwife in Japan, mm-hmm. and uh, during the labor, she was actually on the bed mm-hmm. uh, massaging my back. And, uh, I mean, it wasn't a long labor. It was a fairly easy birth. But I just thought, imagine you know, a woman <laughs> being with you to that extent that yeah. they're there, you know, massaging your back. And she was 70 years old mm, and yeah. she had met a lot of experience. And her name was Maru, Maru-san, which is a full mm-hmm. circle. So yeah. it's like the full circle of life. It was so beautiful. Yeah. So, uh, so you know, I know, I know what you're talking about about uh, supporting women in those situations, and uh, and uh, what a midwife can do. You know what that means. Mm. 
I mean, I work in a practice with a group of seven other midwives. We're, we're all privately practicing. And our normal birth rate is 90%. Uh, you know, our cesarean section rate, our forced delivery rate is all under 10%. And, you know, 100% of those women are breastfeeding at six weeks. Now, that's not because there's anything magical we're doing. But what we're doing is working with women for nine months and they have trust, and, and we are, when we touch them in labor, it's not a stranger's touch, it's, 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 a, it's a friend's touch. It's not a functional touch, it's a relationship touch. And you just watch, if you get antenatal care right, if you get the relationship right, you watch the birth unfold, and then you watch motherhood unfold in such a, a much more positive frame. So for me, um, you know, whatever we do, Let's return the relationship to childbirth. If, if, you know, you get married or you have a 21st, you don't invite strangers. You invite those you want. Why do we think birth, which is another major life event, is, it's okay to just have anyone come in and do anything to you. It's, it's, I think it's completely unacceptable, and I just wish the scales in some ways would fall off women's eyes. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of work to be done, but it is great work that midwives are doing, and it seems like the groundswell is building again off the back of some great history and off the back of a great service and role that midwives play within communities. Thanks so much for joining us, Hannah Dolan. Really appreciate you sharing your words and wisdom here with us on 3CR this morning. Thanks so much for having me. So now we have play on people in the studio here, Lydia and Tom Marlin. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having us, Patty. Pleasure, pleasure, and Judith, and he, and Kate, and Kate's organising some things. But we're so excited to chat to you because you have a interesting organisation and performing arts company where you blend techno, schmechno with classical <laughs> music, and that's where we have Tom in the studio. Tom Mullen, I understand that you're the cellist in the collective that is now Play On Collective. Yeah, that's right. And you caught the train in from Adelaide. No, playing life goals. Yeah, that's right. You know, yeah. it was I was busing for a while. Now it's a plane, so you know. That's it awesome. sounds like an improvement. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, we're super lucky that you've come all this way to do that. Ah, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a great thing to be involved in. I, you know, it's it's sort of um, it's a bit of a passion project for me personally, actually. So yeah, any chance to sort of play good music in a in um, you know, in an eclectic setting, let's say. Um, you know, everyone's pretty committed to doing a good job and, you know, the whole the whole vibe, new audiences and everything, responding to music that you might not even get a positive response from with a, let's say, more musically literate, you know, um, audience. So, yeah, it's, mm. it's great. And that's what Play On has positioned itself so well, is introducing different listeners to classical music and also... Um, classical music listeners to different dance music say is that right Lydia? yeah yeah that's absolutely right that was the, that's the concept is to try and open up new audiences both for classical music but also then to electronic music so when we're programming our djs we're thinking about that too who's sort of playing the most interesting stuff at the moment you know and who we think would work with that, with our project and be in line with the values of our project which is about yeah mm. exposing new audiences beautiful and this is series three and series three is now seen a collective form on play on before that it wasn't a collective yeah. Right? yeah well basically we started it in november last year we did four shows then and we did three shows earlier this year and we're in the middle of our 
a run of three shows at the moment and we just happened to work, you know work with a few artists in the first series who were so fantastic the audience loved them they totally got the you know the vibe of what play on mm. was about because the artists all speak to the audience at the beginning of the performances um and you know they were just so wonderful so we ha- have had a lot of them back and tom is one of those people who played the very first series and then a couple of shows in the second series and now a couple of shows in the third series so yeah we're starting to think of them as a company of artists which is really nice and we're very honoured to have these artists. That's so nice. Um, and how can people get along to these shows? Understand it's a ticketed event and it it's is. wise to book a ticket in it advance. It is, Save yes. A bit of pennies. Yes, that's right. So we we had our opening night last Friday and that sold out and tickets are moving really well for this Friday. I think people are really interested in the repertoire and the DJ for this week in particular. And um, you can get tickets through our website, um, playonmusic.com.au. And where, where do you perform? Where is it? Uh, it's at the Collingwood Arts Precinct, this series. So it's at, on Johnson Street there, and it's going to be sort of redeveloped, I think, into some sort of cultural mecca. But at the moment, whilst they're waiting for planning permits and things, they've got a program of activation in there, and we're the very first ones to be doing a major Fantastic. a major yeah. Um, yeah, gig in there. So it's been... A, uh, learning curve and lots of fun and it's a great space yeah. it's, it's got a great vibe in there so it's nice so the sound's working yeah. in there obviously yeah it like, is the car park yeah. we sort of thought we'd hit on the greatest thing in the entire world when we we're in the car park because had a great vibe and um a great acoustic um but this also has a really good acoustic and an interesting vibe so Beautiful. yeah come along definitely where can people where is the best place for people to find information to this show yeah. and stay in tune with play on because i understand it's not just a one-off or a three-off that's it's right. going to be sticking around that's right so um probably through facebook is where we have most up, up-to-date sort of info but we have detailed info on our on our website about the repertoire and about the artists and about um, like links to the soundcloud accounts for the DJs and things like that. So if you want detailed info, the website's your place. Beautiful. <laughs> and what's the website again? Playonmusic.com.au Unreal. Well, thank you both so much for coming in. Sorry it was so short and sweet, but I hope people can get down yeah. and get grooving to your music and your shows and learn something new and feel something great. Thanks, Paddy, and all of you guys here today. Thank you. Want to support 3CR's diverse and independent voices? Well, it's not too late, and we still need your support. Donate now by calling 9419 8377 or donate online at www.3cr.org.au or post us a cheque or money order to Post Office Box 1277, Collingwood 3066. That's right, it's not too late to donate. And a good way to donate is head down to the Fundraiser 3CR Film Fundraiser. It's titled Battle of the Sexes. Good um, title. <laughs> it is. And tickets are concession $20 and full fare is 25 And then all proceeds go to helping maintain and run this great station. That you all love. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and next we're talking to uh, Rhonda Held, CEO from Council on the Ageing Victoria, about an event they're holding um, really soon, I think in October. It's called the Heart of Ageing um, and it's celebrating International Day of Older Persons. Um, hello, Rhonda, are you there? 
Good morning. Good morning. I'm good. Um, Look, this event, it sounds really interesting, and it's got an amazing panel um, of four speakers, including Lee Lin Chin from SBS, Jan Caro, writer and lecturer, Uncle Jack Charles, um, Indigenous elder and renowned actor, and Lewis Peeler from the old singing group The Sapphires, political activist and educator. I mean, wow, this sounds like an event for um, all ages. (laughs) Absolutely, and uh, we're really wanting to create some lively debate, and I think those four people will definitely do that. Um, but they're also all great examples of, you know, people who uh, have contributed, you know, significantly both throughout their lives and as older people. Um, Jane is also writing a book um, about this topic, so what it's like to be a, a woman over fifty. Um, yeah, so she will have done a lot of research that she'll share with us. But um, we're really wanting, I guess, to change the conversation about ageing. It's not something that we like to think about necessarily, Um, but our community is ageing and, you know, we're heading towards um, having a quarter of our population over 65, uh, you know, over the next couple of decades. What is that conversation about ageing then um, that you're wanting to change? Yeah, well, I think, you know, we think about the lives of our our parents and grandparents and, um, you know, when they first introduced the age pension, uh, people only lived a couple of years longer after 65. Mm. Now we're living to 90, 100, so we've got this huge um, span of longevity and it's not just kind of the life course that we had where we go to school and work and retire. We're doing all sorts of different things. As we age, we go to different careers. Older people contribute a huge amount to the community, but we also have this other kind of underlying pervasive ageism in our community where maybe older people aren't valued as much as they should be, Mm. Um, and uh, that creates a lot of barriers for people. So CODA represents people over 50, and people often say that's very young, but it's actually when discrimination cuts in in employment. Um, People find it hard to get a job if they lose their job over 50, um, and at its worst, uh, we see elder abuse as a manifestation of ageism. So CODA runs the um, Elder Abuse Fingers Rights Service. And, uh, you know, we see older people being financially and physically and emotionally abused. So that's what happens when we don't value older people. Mm. Um, so we want to raise all of those those issues um, and really get people to think about it. Yeah, that's fabulous. Um, so the event will cover some of these issues and struggles, um, and with that amazing panel. That's right. Yeah, and the panel will really talk about their experience of, you know, aging in our community, being fairly high-profile people, obviously, um, and the you know, the opportunities and the challenges that they've experienced. You know, them. Um, absolutely, being... and great role models, aren't they? Absolutely. All of them. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, so when's the event and is it, I mean, it's obviously for all ages. It's, it um, is, yeah, yeah, we really want it to be a community conversation. Absolutely. So it's, uh, the International Day of Older Persons is on the 1st of October, but the event is on the 4th. Mm-hmm. It's at the Wheeler Centre um, in Little, Con- in Little Lonsdale Street. Um, and yes, you can book tickets through our website, uh, codavix.org.au, um, or you can call us on 9654-4443. Um, to book into that event and really encourage you. We're also uh, hoping to live stream it because there's a bit of a limit on the numbers of people. 
Yes, when I heard the lineup, I thought you probably mm. sold out already. Yeah. <laughs> how, yeah. how are the tickets going? <laughs> they are going well so far. Yeah, yeah. but yeah, there's still some available. Yeah. That's fabulous. Um, we'll share everything on our on our Facebook page and website. Um, thank you so much for talking to us this morning, Rhonda. Thank you very much. Cheers. Have a great day. Bye. Bye. You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast, September 6th, and a few community announcements or maybe some uh, news we'd love to share with you. Anyone got something sparking? Well, it's Indigenous Literacy Day today, and the uh, in, in, it's run by the Indigenous Literacy Foundation, and they're particularly interested in, um, in uh, young people and literacy in remote communities. So they have three areas that they work on, on uh, three projects, if you like. So one is just getting books out there uh, into communities. The other is what they call Book Buzz, which is mainly in Western Australia. And that's um, about an early childhood program, um, getting people reading. And the last one is um, community literacy projects. So the, that's the broad range of things. And, you know, literacy is a kind of fraught issue because when you read... You're reading words, but you're also learning things about you're getting values and uh, uh, you hear about how different people are thought about and uh, looked at. You could learn things that actually put down your community if you're not careful. So what I think is very interesting about the foundation is they are actually creating books in language with communities. So I think this is this is really interesting. So today is the celebration of Indigenous literacy. And uh, in Melbourne, they're going to be launching a new book. They have their ambassadors, Andy Griffiths and, and Jared Thomas, and they'll join students from the Tiwi Islands at Federation Square at 10.30 this morning. So uh, you can get down, but they do actually want you to get a ticket. So um, 10.30 to 11.30, it's on. So that's uh, something to keep in mind. And the book is Shallow in the Deep End, the tale of a water buffalo who thinks he's a pet dog. Sounds awesome. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? Yes. And, and they also have um, events in, in Perth and uh, in Sydney and Brisbane as well. And all of those will be launching various uh, different kinds of books. So anyway, it sounds like a really interesting subject and something I didn't know very much about. So yeah. you, they, they have a website. You can go to to find out more if you're interested, and it's Indigenous Literacy Foundation. That's all one word. dot org. dot au. Fabulous. And now for um, another event and community announcement, um, Melissa Turner. We wanted to speak to her last week and um, couldn't get through, but hooray! This week she joins us to share um, an awesome camp that she's collectively running to connect kids and adults back to nature. Um, and it comes at an important time. We're always trying to, we're feeling quite disconnected in our lives. And we even spoke to Stephen Dupont a few weeks ago um, from the Institute of Games around the impact that video games are having on kids. So this is a really wonderful camp, not just for kids, but for adults. Um, Melissa, are you there? Yeah, I am. I'm, I'm sitting in Wattle Park. Awesome. Amongst a whole lot of birds and trams. <laughs> How lovely. And you're very loud, but we will figure that out. Um, thanks okay. for chatting to Sorry. us. No, no, it was quite funny. Um, so can you just tell us a little bit about this um, this upcoming camp? You sound like you're in a beautiful setting to talk about connecting um, people back yes. with nature. <laughs> yes, this is um, this is my new sit spot. I just moved house over the weekend. Awesome. And my, I've renewed my commitment to, to come and visit this place each each day, hopefully, and 
get to know the birds and animals and trees around here. That's a good initiative and, in itself. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's kind of similar to what our camp is about. So, yeah, we've got a camp coming up called Wild by Nature Village Camp. Mel, I might just ask, could you just... Um, yep. Get a little bit back from the phone. It's quite. We've got it quite loud here that we're hearing. Um, you're very clear, little... which is fabulous. Just a little bit away from. Yeah, great. Sorry, you were saying. Okay, how's that? Yeah, better. Okay. Sorry. Yeah, you, you were saying. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about the camp again. Yeah. Cool. Um, so yeah, basically, it's it's a village camp. Like all ages welcome. Kids, families, single adults grandparents, whoever, everyone is welcome. And, and we're going to run a program for all, all of the different ages where like kids can go and hang out and do crazy fun stuff in the bush, climb trees, make shelters, play with learning how to make fire with, with mentors around. Um, and adults can do similar things in their own group. And, of course, there'll be mixing between ages and... Yeah, and in the afternoons, everyone will hang out and play. <laughs> There's not so much time for play for all ages these days. Um, yeah, and share songs and stories and food around the fire at night and... And there's Just some um, slow down and hang out. Totally, I mean, and that's what we need more of. Some sort of yeah. skills and activities. There's um, oh, I can't remember the group, but they're like bushcraft sort of stuff. Yeah, Wildcraft Australia and, and Claire Dunn from Nature's Apprentice will be joining us as well. She's part of organising it. That's um, so she spent a year in the bush learning how to do all these things that all of our ancestors used to do. Both Claire and Nikki from Wildcraft Australia spent that year. Um, yeah, so, so we're going to be sharing some of those skills, like learning how to make fire by friction, which... When I did that the first time, I was brought to tears. Like, it's it's so crazy that you know that's that's how we have evolved as humans by fire, and and yet these days it's not a skill that most people know how to do, and and to create fire with your own hands, it's poor. oh, it's amazing. It, what it, a life skill, it, absolutely. Yeah. If you're ever stuck in, yeah, the, exactly. Well, not if you're stuck in the bush, bushfires, but yeah, absolutely. We yeah. need to learn these simple skills that we've lost in our in our generation. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, can you tell us uh, where just a little bit about um, when when and how we can find out more? I've seen it on Facebook. So the camp is called. Is it the camp is called Wild by Nature Village Camp. It's going to be run on the second week of the school holidays, the fourth to the eighth of October in Riddles Creek. And you can find out more by going to yeah, either the Facebook group, so if you search Fire Keepers or Wild by Nature Village Camp, um, or uh, yeah, on my website, which is www.firekeepers.com.au, or straight to trybooking.com forward slash QWOV. Awesome. And, and we've got a couple of weekend tickets left as well if um, people can't commit to the whole five days. Yes. Yeah, um, and also week tickets too. Great idea. Yeah. I've got so some friends Wednesday that are going. <laughs> yeah, awesome. Sounds so it's going to be amazing. <laughs> um, Mel, thank you for yeah. joining us today on 3CR. And uh, we'll share okay. all of that on our website and Facebook. Wonderful, wonderful. Awesome. See Enjoy you. your day. Thanks. You're listening to Wednesday Brekkie, 3CR. And what a breakfast it's been. Who have we got coming up after this?
oh, so now um, jam-packed show, giving you all the content today, but this is a really um, interesting and important topic. We've got Ella Stewart-Peters. She's from Flinders University and chatting to us about, you know, she's got a particular interest in the social history of medicine. Um, So we're discussing how the highly politicised campaign about anti-vaccinations, how that's kind of changed throughout history. So recently an anti-vaccination advocate was denied entry into Australia based on their views. Um, Peter Dutton, the immigration minister, um, made the decision to deny Mr Hecken Lively entry, um, saying that his views were not welcome in Australia. So that's an interesting interesting in it in itself. But Ella, are you there? Ella isn't quite there at the moment, which okay. is a tough thing when you're trying to do a phone interview. But I that's thought okay. it was interesting to bring up. Um, there's been a lot of play in the political scheme. And has anyone followed up with Wexit or W-A-X-I-T? Wexit. No, what, what is um, it? Is, is Western Australia going to leave again? Yeah, it's going to leave again. <laughs> oh, it's see. just always trying to run away. Yeah, Further okay. west, I heard, it wanted to leave. I see. No, I haven't heard anything about that. But something coming up this weekend that I'm very interested in is the Independent and Peaceful Australia Network, IPAN. They have a national conference and uh, they, they're dedicated to ending war and uh, looking at closing down the, the American bases in Australia. And uh, this is a huge issue, given what's, ha- given what's happening now in North Korea and the world. So if people are free and they want to get out, just go to the IPAN website. I can say more about it, but I don't know if our guest is ready yet. Have we got we'll it? check. Um, Ella, are you on the line? Hi, Ella, are you there? Yes. Awesome, great. So we were just um, introducing, I guess, why this is an important topic now and and really like your kind of point of view um, or looking at it from a historical point of view, the argument of whether it should be compulsory to vaccinate or whether it should be parents' choice, I mean, is a big controversial topic. Um, And from your understanding and research, how has this argument changed over time throughout history? Well, I specialise mostly in the 19th century and um, from what I've discovered through my research, I could probably say that the argument hasn't really changed an awful lot mm. in the last 150 years or so. So talking, talking the same, talking the same conversations, having the same battles. Absolutely. Yeah, um, and we're not just talking about compulsory and non-compulsory, but. Um, we are seeing incentive schemes like on the government's health website, they state they are strengthening its no jab, no pay policy. Um, from the 1st of July 2018, the fortnightly family tax benefit Part A payment would be reduced to $28 per fortnight for each child who does not meet the immunisation requirements. Have you seen in the past where this kind of scheme has worked or have people been quite opposed to it? Well, I would say the 19th century equivalent would be... Um families who relied on the poor law system in Britain. So that revolved around the workhouse and entrance to the workhouse. If you were uh, extremely poor, there was no other real safety net system other than entering the workhouse. And that required your children to be vaccinated and they would be forcibly vaccinated mm. um, if, the, if you did have to enter the workhouse. But certainly um, vaccination was compulsory in Britain between 1853 and it it essentially lost its compulsory aspects in 1907 um, due to extensive protest 
against it. Okay, that's interesting. And what were the outcomes of such protests? They just they stopped the compulsory vaccination scheme. Well, in 1867, uh, they actually strengthened the compulsory aspects and made it um, possible for you to be charged uh, um, for a crime under the Vaccination Act repeatedly um, up until the age of 14. So your child uh, had to be vaccinated if they were under the age of 14. If they weren't, Mm. you were subjected to repeated fines and sent through the court system. Um, There was extensive protest about that. And in 1898, it became possible for you to go to court and obtain a certificate of conscientious objection. And what were the objections? Why were people against having their children vaccinated at that time? Very much for the same reasons they are today. They believed vaccines were dangerous, that they were spreading diseases rather than preventing them, and that they actually made you less immune to other diseases. Um, so, So that was the general belief at the time, and as you say, that's still with us. Yes. Yeah, so what's the evidence? The that, evidence that they were basing their... Yeah, that, yeah they based their, their concerns on that they decided not to vaccinate. I mean, I understand it's pretty thin. Yes, well, in, I would argue in the 19th century, their arguments were actually probably quite strong. Um, 19th century vaccination wasn't the vaccination that we know today. Ah, yes. There were no... There were no um, hypodermic needles. There was no clean injection site. A, a, child, right. a child's arm would be cut and then mm. the vaccine matter would be taken from another child's arm that had been vaccinated the that week before. That was for smallpox, wasn't it? Yes. Okay. This is the only kind of vaccine available yeah. for most of the 19th century. So children were running around with um, open wounds, very deep a little bit more dangerous back then, yeah, yeah. getting gangrene. And they could, yeah, they yeah. could get yeah. very sick. And what's some of the basis or, or how have you um, gone back in time to look at these kind of historical events? How do you gather your work? Well, my research looks mostly at the opinions of the everyday citizen. So we see today um, social media um, through blogs and that kind of thing. The average citizen gets to present their opinions to the public. So the equivalent of that I've found has been um, letters to the editor Mm. in newspapers where individuals could write their own personal opinions and find their own name and present their opinions and understandings to the world. As you can say, what were the re- what were the logic given or offered by the authorities pushing these vaccines on the children and the families? What was the argument for? Well, a lot of the argument for compulsion began with the idea that people weren't vaccinating their children because they were too ignorant to understand mm-hmm. it. So it was a lot. It was targeted a lot at the working classes and the lower classes of society. Mm-hmm. Um, but once the um, repeated prosecutions came in in 1867. It attracted a lot of attention from middle-class opponents who then took over and started fighting the system through the courts. Uh, And then it became sort of a public public health issue, really, um, with trying to get these people to vaccinate their children forcibly. Mm. 
Um, so you're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast and we're chatting to Ellis Stewart-Peters from Flinders University who wrote in the conversation uh, not too long ago the article The Short History of Vaccine Objection, Vaccine Cults and Conspiracy Theories. Um, it's a great historical understanding of vaccination campaigns. Um, Ella, how can we kind of learn from our anti-vaccination campaigns in the past? Is there anything we can use today to get an understanding on maybe what's, what's to come? Well, my my thoughts on doing this kind of research is um, finding out what we've what we've done in the past and what didn't work. Because mm. as I sort of said before, um, the same debates are ongoing. We're having the same discussions. It's built around the same fears and misunderstandings. So compulsory vaccination didn't work 150 years ago. Mm. And we're now talking about making vaccination compulsory again through different sorts of channels. And if we don't deal with the problems we had 150 years ago, it's not going to be successful again. Yeah, absolutely. Um, great point and big topic of conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll post some some links of your article as well, again, on our website and our Facebook page. Um Thank you, Ella, for chatting to us this morning. Thank you. Awesome. So that was, yeah, it's a really, it's an interesting topic. I mean, I'm, I don't, I don't have much of an opinion. I know that vaccinations are um, important. I'm, I'm obviously vaccinated, but I, I am also pro-choice. I am also pro-women's choice. <laughs> um, I don't know, no, Judith. No. You're, well, you're not I'm a public, I'm, I'm a public yeah. health person. And, yeah, uh, you're like, no, and, and, it's compulsory, and t- you think is very, good? Well, what I remember is polio. Yeah. When people were dying, children mm. were dying, and uh, also, you know, uh, um, becoming disabled, and suddenly there was the vaccine. Yeah. And it was, I mean, it was. it's almost been eradicated in the world. I think it was, and then I think there might have been, it may have come back somewhere, so... To me, uh, mm. you know, it is amazing. And I think a lot of the um, the talk about it is not based on evidence at all. I think it's been... But, you know, it's like everything else. Yeah, which is why this guy got denied an entry to Australia because yes. he was going to promote his... Um documentary which then the government spent quite a bit um in counter to that documentary to show all of the um proof that their statements were incorrect yes um and when you see children with whooping cough and some of the measles yeah. and some of those diseases recent in western australia as well yeah i mean with which could be so easily prevented uh, I, yeah i, I just I, you're right i don't have much sympathy with it, <laughs> with the argument i mean but the thing is what she when she was talking about the 1800s i, I meant to ask but you know there was a period where they didn't even wash their hands between mm. going because a lot of women died in childbirth and they wouldn't go into the hospital they didn't want to go in interestingly bringing back our other topic and then you know someone found out that because the obstetricians of the doctors would go from one patient who had a disease to the other oh, wow. and just spread it and i can't mm. remember this was a bad public health person here i can't remember the name of actually the fever that the women got so in fact at that time it, you know the sanitation wasn't great people didn't understand about germs and how they spread so at, at you know at that time i think there were some real dangers mm. but these days you know it's not as she explained yeah yeah well, i reckon i sit somewhere in the middle of that i've had a few, <laughs> you're, you're I've a had middle, a few vaccinations a i'm not a fence i think vaccines have had have their place and yeah. like as you say have helped eradicate polio gone near to it and have done some great things but i feel like 
there is an overuse of the vaccines within society at the moment. And going down the path of forcing people off support, government support, is just mm. a strange way. And it, it, it does definitely feel rings strange. alarm bells. No, no, I, I understand the, the feeling around that. In terms of vaccinations, I don't think that's overdone. I think it's the antibiotics that are being over-prescribed. Mm. And that's a very different kind of thing and that's that's another whole whole different issue Mm. yeah yeah it's very hard but i thought to wrap it up there's also a 2007 frank fisher award um which everyone can nominate now um and you nominate someone who you know has stood up for community health issues or someone to choose the right for better health care the award celebrates the legacy of frank fisher who was a passionate advocate for health and well-being of vulnerable people and people with disability. You can find out more at 3cr.org.au and nominations close 8 September. We've had a great show today here on 3CR Wednesday Breakfast with many great guests sharing their insights. Nice segue, Patty. Yes. <laughs> and Lovely I, to have you back, Judah. <laughs> oh, thank you. It's great to be here. And I just want to plug one more time for the IPAN conference this weekend. Do check it out because there's a free lecture on um, oh God, uh, Friday night, this Friday. I'm sad I'm not going to be here. But it's Professor, Associate Professor David Vine and his area is... Um, scholarship in, on the U.S. bases around the world, and he's done anthropologists, and he's studied these in uh, different countries. So if we want to know about Pine Gap, what's happening, get along. Big time. Thanks for joining us here on Wednesday Breakfast. Stick Together is up next. Have a lovely Wednesday. <laughs>